Welcome to TA1, everything you want to know about adventure racing and then some. I'm your host, legendary Randy Erickson, here on a wonderful, nice, warm Monday night. No co-host tonight. They are uh, all outside in their cages on the porch, screaming at anybody that would happen to be unlucky enough to ride by on the trail tonight. So... It's kind of interesting because Jimmy can really scream, as some of you have heard here before. So imagine what it's like somebody riding in a mountain bike, just a nice little ride on a trail, and all of a sudden, Godzilla. Oh, no. Godzilla. Um, that's, a, that's a joke for any Bob and Tom fans. I'm not going to go into it. Anyway, so that's where we're doing. It's like... Um, Two weeks, just under two weeks, Paulette will be home, and no more single parenting for me, even though I think she might go again, but we are surviving. So this week's episode with Simon Donato, I suspect, will be huge with the Canadian listeners. Um, I think the rest of the world may not know Simon as well as they do, but uh, you will after this. Um, it was fun talking with him. Um, when you get to the show notes, I'm just going to put Simon's um, website on there and you can find everything else from there because I'd run out of bandwidth if I had to put all his links on there. So I'm just going to do it the lazy way. But uh, it was a fun chat. Uh, the only other business this week is um, I'm going to reach out for a friend who is looking for a team for Cowboy Tough World Championships. So if um, you are looking for somebody who will uh, not let you down, keep you laughing, and uh, probably will buy you a cheeseburger or two someplace on the course. Probably a team that's looking to uh, full course, finish, have a good time. Just uh, get in touch with me and I will hook you up. So, you know, it's one of those things. This happens, so he needs a team. That's probably enough, right? So let's um, uh, hear what Simon has to say. So go fast, take chances, um, don't litter. Simon. Hi. How's it going, Randy? Ah, good. How are you? Doing well, man. So you must be a podcaster because you're exactly on time. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I, actually, I have started an adventure science podcast that's been in the works for a while, and um Adventure science is what well, we we organize. Well, we interview uh, scientists, uh, adventure athletes, and uh, explorers on it. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I listened to the first episode. Oh, cool. I liked it. Thank you, thank you. So, yeah, uh, so. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, you, you you guide me, but thanks for uh, thanks for reaching out. Um, sure. So, uh, I'm guessing the Canadian listeners know who you are. <laughs> But I don't know uh, about the rest of the world. So let's start with, who are you? Who is Simon Donato? <laughs> that's, uh, that's a big question, right? Well, it is. I mean, I, I guess I like to think of myself as, a, as an entrepreneur, an adventurer, and uh, a motivator or an enabler. Um, uh, formally, I spent a lot of years in school studying uh, different realms of uh, science and anthropology. Uh, came out with a uh, PhD in sedimentary geology with expertise in uh, paleontology, tsunami uh, research as well. And uh, at the same time I was in school, I really got into adventure racing. And that just uh, made me thrilled to get outside and exercise. I mean, I couldn't wait for my next race because it was really a chance to explore and spread my wings in a way that I had never done to date. So um, I guess I'm a guy who's got two loves, and that's that's the love of adventure and exploration, and then the love of uh, exploration for scientific purposes. So 
um, that that sums me up pretty well. And then uh, just my entrepreneurial spirit has led to a few different endeavors like uh, Stoked Oats, my oatmeal company. Um, I created Adventure Science in 2008, which is an organization where I pair adventurers with researchers to uh, undertake scientific and humanitarian projects. And um, I suppose most uh, would know me if they do, for Boundless, a television show I created in 2012 with uh, my friends Josh and Jordan Eady. And that came out of an adventure science ultra-running project, a documentary that we had completed a year before called Go Death Racer. So uh, that is kind of who I am and uh, what I do now. Yeah, so when are you going to get on with your life and do something? Oh, one of these days, <laughs> I suppose. There's no rush. So, uh, well, yeah, I think where I first heard from you is on uh, Attack Point, and people would be asking, oh, where, yeah. "Where can we see? Where can we see the next episode of Boundless?" And and I'm just kind of like, "Huh, what's this all about?" And mm-hmm. so um, that's where I first heard of you, and then we got introduced, and I read the book. Oh, thank you. So, yeah, you forgot to mention you're an author. Uh, I guess, yeah. <laughs> that's a story. <laughs> oh, don't say that. How's that? Yeah, I uh, I liked the book. Well, thank you. It was um, interesting. It was one of those that was like, oh, I'm done already. So, and for me, that's always kind of my uh, my uh, milepost is like, oh, well, how come he didn't write more? Well, funny funny <laughs> story there. To become an author, you also have to become an armadillo or a rhinoceros of sorts because you need extremely thick skin. Uh, mm-hmm. leave the ego at the door if you're going to do any serious writing because I did write more. My first, my first <laughs> draft was 85,000 words. Um, <laughs> I got the edits back uh, several months later, 34, 35,000 words was all that remained. So they had basically chopped about 50,000 words out of, uh, out of the book. So you learn mm-hmm. to, uh, to accept uh, constructive criticism and, you know, put your trust to some degree into people who have uh, or, or work on producing books that sell well for a living. So that's kind of what I did and learned some lessons along the way. Uh, but overall, I, I think the, the book became a better and tighter read that uh, was a little more interesting than what I had originally drafted. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm sort of an outlier because if I see a book that looks fairly interesting and it's 900 pages, it's like, yes. So, <laughs> so you love one so, piece. So, so send me the galleys and I'll read the other 50,000 words and be happy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've always figured that, uh, or at least since, since we finalized the manuscript, I figure, well, at some point I'm just going to print that up and uh, you know the kids and grandkids can read it down the road and really know, uh, you know the boring details of all those adventure races and I mean, there was races and, um, you know, boundless episodes and adventure science projects that didn't even make it into the book. So, um, you know, there there is more there. Yeah, I'm sure there is. So we'll uh, let's start with adventure racing and then sure. I'll, I'll come to all these questions I have. So you were introduced by to adventure racing by Pete Cameron. Correct. Who's been a guest on the podcast. Oh, good. So, yeah, yeah, Pete's the man. Yeah, and I, and I will uh, tell you the other person when I was reading the book is Jim Mandeli. Yes. I met him at Primal Quest in '09, and was okay. one of the people that there's a handful of people from that race that I even if I haven't spent any time with him, I remember, and he's one of those. So oh, okay. So what was your uh, origin story, so to speak, for adventure racing? Well, I grew up as a massive a lover of team sports and martial arts. So anything endurance related, uh, even warm ups for a soccer or a football game that, you know, go run a few laps around the field, it was an eternity. I hated that stuff. And I'm not sure why. I used to love to run if I ever got into the trails behind my house or if I had to go to a friend's house as a kid, I'd run there because walking was too slow. But I think when I was told I had to do it, it was less enjoyable. I didn't get to share it with anybody in the same way that you kind of celebrate uh, the success in a team sport. Perhaps I didn't feel like I had a role to fill uh, in, mm-hmm. in team sport. You know, in football, you're blocking, you're catching, you're doing – you've got a job to do. And even if the play doesn't come to you, you know, you, there's there's a role to fill out there. Same with soccer. Uh, I think when it came to running – 
it was just go run. It's like, well, why? I mean, I don't <laughs> love it that much. It's difficult yeah. for me. So in, God, it would have been 94 or so, I really got into mountain biking with a couple of uh, close high school friends, uh, Jason Griffith, Greg Marshall, and we opened a mountain bike center together uh, in the ski hill behind our house. So I kind of cut my teeth on endurance sports through mountain biking, but because it was in its infancy, you know, we'd all ride together. There was a lot of uh, flow and adrenaline, so that really hooked me. And, you know, there's a lot of laughs after the rides and during the rides. And uh, so it seemed like a team sport in a sense. So when Pete called me in 1998 and he knew I mountain biked. We had always uh, done camping trips every summer together, the group of us. So uh, it wasn't too much outside of my comfort zone except for the indeterminate amount of trekking that I was going to have to do. So basically, Pete Cameron was working for Ray the North. It was their first year up and running, you know, Dave Zietzma's uh, big adventure racing company. And he said, Simon, you've got to come out and do this event. Uh, I'm working for this company. It's going to be great. We're in northern Ontario, you know, you're bushwhacking, paddling, running, orienteering, navigating. It's a team of four. You're going to have a blast. I was like, well, Pete, I don't really know how to navigate off a map, and I don't know who I'd race with. Well, he says, I'll pair you with Derek Caveney. And Derek's a good friend of mine from high school and, and Pete's as well and was the smartest kid in our graduating class. So we're like, all right, well, we'll leave him with the navigational duties. He'll be able to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he hooked us up with uh, a couple uh, in Ottawa. Tom uh, Tom and Heather were their names. You know, they're around the same age. And we were just kind of like-minded kids. We were all in undergrad. We were all uh, big fans of being outside and um, taking on uh, outdoor challenges, whatever they may be, maybe not at – uh, an intense racing level, uh, although Derek was a cross-country standout at Queens, um, it seemed like it was a group that could work. And so after a little bit of cajoling from Pete, we just said, yeah, what the hell, let's go for it. And really never looked back. That that race was such an eye-opener. It's based at a spree rafting on the Ottawa River and got me into just some beautiful, beautiful places that uh, made me say, yeah, this is definitely the sport for me. No. Well, uh, we'll, we're continuing that, but I want to just something you just casually mentioned that you and your high school buddies opened a mountain biking center. That sort of foreshadowing for the rest of your career that you just like, well, let's just open something and make some, make something. I guess so. Uh, I, 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 been somebody who, if I've seen a need for something and I have a passion for it, I don't wait to be asked. I don't, wait for other people to take the initiative i've always just jumped in and done it i've had the encouragement from my parents as well uh occasionally financial support if i've needed it but um i guess i've always been a self-starter in in that respect and had that entrepreneurial spirit where you know i i I don't necessarily have a business plan i don't know how i'm going to make money at some of these things but there's a void i'd like to fill it and, and put my stamp on it so to speak and um i will tackle it and figure it out as I go. I mean, we started Stoked Oats um, with no experience in the in the food industry at all. I was a geologist. My business partner was a pipeline engineer, both working for Imperial Oil. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, that's a good point. It did foreshadow. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to Stoked Oats, too. Yeah, we're we're going to be here a while. But do you is, – is that entrepreneurial thing that you have – can people learn that, or is that do you have do you have to be born with it? That's an excellent question, and i I really don't know the answer to it. I think it's something that we can train ourselves into. I think you have to have a mind for it. I think you have to have a certain level of risk tolerance or maybe just general naivety um, <laughs> that these kind of challenges don't scare you off that you, you've got the moxie, I guess to tackle it and open Pandora's box without knowing what's going to come out and just say, hey, I'll figure it out. I I love the idea behind this. And the other side of it is even if you don't figure it out, that's okay too. You know, there's there's nothing wrong with trying and failing. And I don't know if I'm saying that as, you know, 40-year-old Simon who's been at this for a while and has raced, you know, some of the biggest, most challenging races around the world and and had the ups and downs that goes along with that and learn these lessons – through trial and fire or trial by fire or if this is you know 18 year old Simon talking and just that was the mentality I had at the time I know I was extremely motivated to create something uh, back then and um, it, it didn't seem daunting yeah so 
what's what's the most important lesson you've learned by failing? Oh, that's not the end of the world. The failing <laughs> it's a great teacher, and that you know, yeah. failing is is one perspective um, on a, a situation where the outcome may not be what the anticipated or desired goal was. So sure, we'll call that a fail. But um, I think there's many other ways to interpret that. And I certainly don't think of myself as a failure. But mm. by classical definition, I have had um, races that didn't go well, that I dropped out of. I've, I've done things with my business that we've had to course correct and uh, you know, basically forget about. So from the outside looking in, you could say those were failures. From the inside looking out, I would say, you know, we tried and it didn't go the way we had wanted it to. And there's things to be learned and we'll apply those next time so that our, our goals are met and we're more successful than ever. Yeah. That, yeah. That, those are important lessons to learn. Um, the, I, okay. This, here's a bad question. Would you consider it a failure or failure if you were sitting in some office somewhere working on geology and that's all you were doing? Oh, not at all. Nope. Um, I, I enjoyed my time as a geologist. It just, it wasn't for me. I wasn't the best uh, geologist for that company. Um, hmm. I realized that fairly early on. I had a lot of other uh, dreams uh, that I wanted to pursue. And, you know, that took my mind away from the interesting work that uh, I was being paid to do. So, yeah. no, it's certainly not a failure. And, uh, in fact, I, I guess what really drives me in life now is being able to give back to the world in some way, shape, or form, and not doing things for purely selfish reasons, which I think a lot of us um, maybe wrestle with on a day-to-day. So let me give you an example of what I mean. When I was when I was really racing hard on the adventure racing world in the early days before I started Boundless in ultra running, you know, I just I'd fallen in love with both sports. I just wanted to commit myself to them and be the best I could be. You know, if I if I had a good ultra run and I won a race or podiumed or whatever, had a PB, my family didn't benefit. My wife at the time didn't benefit. I felt good for a fleeting moment, but you know, nobody. There was no lasting impact. Um, racing like that is a, is a, is a selfish pursuit, and you know, I, I think a lot of us as masters athletes. You know, we fall into it because we're running from something. We're hiding from something. And, you know, I'm, I'm not calling people out right now. This is just my own pure experience. But um, I've observed enough. Uh, I've, I've looked at my life enough that it seems to ring true for more than just me. So what I really fell in love with after I kind of realized this and had a few crash and burns uh, when I realized I was like, neglecting important people and uh, things in my life was that I needed to do more and I needed to give back in a way that didn't make me feel so selfish. So in 2008, I created Adventure Science, which was that interplay between research and adventure. And, you know, we, we go out and undertake these projects that wouldn't otherwise happen, create reports. We help people without charging them uh, for the service necessarily so you know this is it's like open source uh science and research plus we do humanitarian projects as well so yeah we're not curing cancer but we're using our special skill set to get back to the world in a meaningful way so when we go out and train when we go out and race there's a bigger overarching purpose now i'm using that fitness to go to the middle east and explore a neglected region for archaeologic ruins and uh, other information we've looked for um, endangered species as well uh, on some of these Oman trips, which is just an example of one that we've done. Uh, and then we share the information with the world to inspire them, educate them, and uh, hopefully enact some, some further action in the region. So, you know, that's what we do. And it feels really good to be using our fitness or doing it in a healthy, clean, low impact way to get back to the world. And, I don't know. I, that's that's where I've come from. So that's a long way, long-winded answer to your original question, which was, is it a failure if you're sitting in the office as a geologist? No, because you're providing energy to people. So we can debate uh, the issues around climate change, et cetera, et cetera, and cleaner ways to uh, to generate energy. I mean, my wife works for a green energy company, 
And, you know, that leaves her feeling really um, empowered and good about herself at the end of the day. I had questions about, you know, what was I doing pulling oil out of the ground? But the fact remains that society needs energy. There's a lot of energy that comes from oil and gas. And, you know, we are making the move away from it. But our lives, our collective lives, especially across North America, have been vastly improved, enriched, lengthened, thanks to consistent energy so you know no i think yeah. people who who have desk jobs uh they are contributing in certain ways it may not be quite as tangible or maybe not exactly what they want to do but yeah there's a contribution yeah well the, i i like my air conditioning when it gets hot right <laughs> Exactly. And uh, where's, where's the power company pulling that from? Um, you know, we don't want to see it coming as coal, that's for sure. But, uh, yeah, we do, we do like the, uh, the luxuries and creature comforts. We do. So luxury and creature comforts, that's not what adventure science is. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, this is one of the coolest things that I've, you know, have seen and heard. So, Tell us what that is and where did you come up with the idea? Adventure Science was uh, originally born uh, in 2000, 2001, I believe. I was, I was a field assistant on a uh, PhD student's uh, summer project, and we were basically looking for fossils. And uh, there was a couple of us out there. And my instructions were, Simon, go over there and excavate that area and uh, let us know what you find. So I started excavating and I found an interesting fossil that turned out to be a new species of what you can basically call a, a sea scorpion. Fascinating, fascinating creature, hundreds of millions of years old. And, you know, it was, it was a big deal. So I thought to myself, well, if I'm finding this in an area that's easy to access but still hasn't been explored. What happens if I were to walk into the forest and follow this rock outcrop along? Could I find more of these? Could I find better preserved specimens of this? And, you know, as a young paleontologist, I started getting really excited about that notion because, one, I love the science. Two, I love to explore. Three, I had the fitness to explore. In 2001, I was at my in my peak adventure racing fitness, if you will, I went to the Eco Challenge in New Zealand that year and we came 10th. So, you know, I was ready to rip. And, um, I just started building on that. When I started my PhD, basically did the same kind of thing and, you know, laid more groundwork for adventure science through my project, which was exploring this large lagoon in Oman in the Middle East. So this big coastal lagoon would fill with uh, the ocean with the tide every day and then empty with the tide. So it's either underwater or it's a total mudflat. And I walked slash swam the entire lagoon for about 50 kilometers over the course of a week, taking a lot of samples. If I didn't have that fitness, if my supervisor didn't have that base level of fitness combined with that base level of uh, scientific understanding and uh, observational ability, it would have been a non-starter. What we did in that week of you know four or five days typically takes teams a month to do in easier environments. I know there was another uh, – group of grad students who were surveying a beach and doing something very, very similar, taking samples of the beach sand. We were taking samples of lagoon sand um, just by walking it. And, you know, it took them nearly a month to do around the same distance. So right there, I saw just the benefits. I mean, A, it made for a cheaper project. I mean, we only had to be out there for a week uh, before we got to switch gears and focus on other things versus a month of doing the same thing. And, you know, being able to walk it, you see so much more. If you drive from site to site, you're missing everything in between. By walking it, uh, I mean, we made so many amazing discoveries, including archaeologic sites like ancient, ancient thousands of year old sites around the perimeter of the lagoon um, that were previously unknown. So like, it really opened my eyes. And then as soon as I graduated and uh, had two nickels to rub together, thanks to Imperial Oil paying us uh, geologists a good salary, uh, I just ran with Adventure Science. I I picked up my first project, pulled together a team, and we went out there to do some good. So that started in 2008, literally a few months after uh, I started working for Imperial and was able to raise a little bit of money. How? Uh, well, what was your pitch to to the, for your first uh, first gig? Well, to the athletes. Well, the athletes and to to 
who's ever paying the bills? <laughs> well, uh, Imperial <laughs> athletes are easy. It's the bill payers that are hard. <laughs> that's that's true. But the way that I've uh, I've structured things for the most part, I mean, occasionally we change it, but at least for that project is, I told the athletes what the cost would be. And they had to be prepared to pay it. So it's very different uh, recruiting athletes when uh, you've, you've already rounded up full sponsorship for everybody and say, hey, I've got a free trip to location X. Do you want to come? Yeah, people want free trips, of course. Yep. As opposed to saying, hey, I've got a really interesting project. Um, I've, I've broken out all the costs and it's going to cost you two grand that you need to give to me. So are you down with that? And, you know, some can afford it, some cannot. And, you know, so that makes it a little more challenging. But yeah. when I've had to go uh, to the corporate sponsors, um, you know, it's, it's evolved through the years. In the early days, I'd go to Imperial and ask for, uh, you know, some financial support. And they enjoyed supporting one of their own to uh, push off on these initiatives and uh, seeing us kind of spread the good word, if, if you know what I mean there. So, yeah. Um, that, those were the early days, and I was able to take leave of absence that went above and beyond uh, vacation. So, you know, personally, I was getting support um, in those ways, to name a few. Yeah. Um, I want to jump back a little bit, which everybody that listens to this knows that's how I am. When you were in the in the golf Oman and, and looking for stuff, mm. how do you how do you recognize a new archaeological site? Well, I mean, it really depends on where you're working in the world as to what would be required. But for us, it was really, really obvious. I mean, these are okay. these are ruined buildings that still have walls standing, still have doorways partially preserved. You know, it'd be like stumbling across the Acropolis, uh, or Acropolis, where you know you still have some pillars standing up, or the Colosseum in Rome to some degree. Um, you don't have to excavate an area that you think might be there. Um, you, you see it already. And the beauty of these desert environments is that you don't get a ton of sediment accumulating. You don't have soil formation that will bury um, a village over, you know, 100 or 500 years or 1,000 years uh, because it's it's very dry. Things kind of stay as they are. Okay. So, it, yeah, you you're walking through wherever, and, and you you just see it, right? Whereas I would walk by and think maybe there's a pile of rocks. Uh, in, in some of the locations, definitely. Some would yeah. look like a pile of rocks, but others, you know, you would you would definitely recognize that there's a, an ancient village there, or that there's a, a definite wall there. Um, and that's that's that brings up a good point. That's why athletes are so capable in these environments, because we're not asking them to. Uh, dig up a specific area or look for something that's really obscure. Typically, we don't ask them to do that. Uh, what we ask is, guys, here's what the landscape looks like normally. We want you guys to observe for things that are different. You don't even need to know what they are. But if they're different, take a photo, mark it on your GPS, write it in your logbook, which we give to them, and then bring that back to the research expert because the researcher is going to be telling you yes or no. Um, so for that, they don't have to interpret it. Let me give you an example of how well this has worked for us in the past. So in 2014, I led a massive expedition to Madagascar. And I mean, we had a team of over 20 people between the Malagasies and um, the uh, Western athletes that flew over for it. And it was, I mean, it was a very big production. It was expensive. Uh, lots of sponsors involved. And, you know, the, the stakes were very high. We had to produce. I certainly felt we had to produce. And we were working with the Malagasy government. So we had hit a number of the aims. Uh, we had found a massive cave, which ultimately turned out to be the third largest in the Singi de Marahara National Park. Huge find. We found an archaeologic site, which was in the order of four to 500 years old. Huge find. Tons of lemur surveys. Really big ad for our primatologists there. But the one thing that we were really in search of still and hadn't found yet were dinosaur tracks, which we knew existed further south. But had we, if we were to find tracks, they would be the furthest known tracks, northerly known tracks in Madagascar. So I had a little bit of pressure on. So picture this. We're walking along this dry riverbed. There's this ancient hiking trail that villagers used to take from one village to the next, still 
take. Uh, you know, it's on the order of about 20 kilometers. And I'm following my geologic map. Now, this area is generally unstudied. So my geologic map is a crude one at best. But I'm following it. And we're getting into the zone where I feel if we're going to find these tracks, we should start seeing them soon. We get into this uh, exposed riverbed. Just think of this bleached white limestone uh, surface. And we find this strange depression. It almost looks like uh, something circular, but it's very, very eroded and faint. I don't say anything. I look at it, kind of analyze it in my head, and dismiss it because I know what the ones in the south look like. They look like a three-toed bird print almost, thing like a chicken scratch in the, in the mud. That's what these dinosaur tracks look like. They were from velociraptors, so they were you know, big enough. But Jim Mandeli, whom you already mentioned, was walking behind me. He says, Simon, why don't we have a look at this? And I turned around to humor him because, you know, I mean, it's great that there's more eyes. That's what the athletes had. And I said, all right, Jim, well, you know, I took a look at it. I don't really know, but what the heck? Let me get the ruler out and uh, I'll measure the dimensions of it. And there's another one over there. And, you know, we'll see if these somehow fit together. And wouldn't you know it, that was a trackway. So here I am, the expert. I walked (laughs) over it, saw it, dismissed it. Jim, he's not a paleontologist. He's never really looked for fossils before. He sees something that's different. And that's the most important thing to being a good observer. You have to be able to identify what's different, and then you follow the proper steps to uh, critically analyze it. So for us, it was okay. If this is an animal walking across the surface, the stride length should be approximately the same between each step. The step itself, the, the footprint should be approximately the same. And, you know, I got the ruler out and measured the distance between the steps, measured the dimensions of the steps. And when you know it, we end up finding that trackway. And then as we scoured the area, we found a few more. So, you know, it was Jim, not me, who mm-hmm. found um, the most northerly trackway in Madagascar known to date on this uh, big adventure science expedition. So that, that was probably one of my proudest moments, actually, um, as, as an adventure scientist. The, yeah, the the, uh, the pupil beats the master, right? Exactly, and you know yeah. that that's always the goal because it just yeah. it gives you that trust and faith that say, hey, if I'm not standing there with these guys, they're still going to be able to make these observations, and uh, you know we can still win. Yeah, um, what's it what's it like when you are somebody that's discovered something that nobody else has ever seen before? Well, I mean, there's a strong sense of accomplishment. Uh, There's pride that goes along with it. And there's uh, typically a really massive desire to share it with the larger community, unless it's a sensitive thing. So, for example, in Oman, in Madagascar, with some of these archaeologic sites that we found, there's been... Uh, beautifully preserved and intact pottery vessels. So just think of, you know, clay bowls. Yeah. Um, we don't typically share, well, we don't ever share the location of, you know, some of these, um, rare and much more sensitive mm-hmm. artifacts. We leave them in place. We take photos. We take, um, GPS coordinates. We take measurements of them. But, you know, for the archaeological ones, we, less is more. We'll share the photos, but we're not going to share the locations. Yeah. Yeah, because unfortunately we all know what happens, right? They disappear. Yeah, exactly. And I would love – I mean, so here's here's one of the ways that adventure science endeavors to give back. It's that, you know, with Oman, there is an incredible, incredible uh, tourist opportunity in the Mussan Dam. Well, they keep it on the water because that's what they know. They're, they're a community of fisher people. Well, fishermen, you can say it over there because <laughs> women just don't get on the water. So <laughs> they don't fish, right? They don't fish, no. Um <laughs> So it, yeah, it's a community of fishermen. They don't go up in the highlands, so they don't. They know that their ancestors used to live up there, and that there's a bunch of ruins up there. But nobody has seen this in years. I mean, we were the first guys to go through it and explore. And you know, it's it's really special. And it wouldn't take too much work by the Omani government to develop that area and turn it into a world class. Um, you know, tourism destination with some incredible archaeology, beautiful, beautiful scenery, uh, everything from easy walking to, you know, some fairly technical scrambling in some of these areas uh, that will take you to, you know, the Machu Picchu's of Oman, which are just, yeah. you know, isolated on tops of uh, small mountains and hills tucked away behind, um, you know, a small rock rise and you walk around the corner and boom, 
there's a cluster of 20 homes and some fields, but you can never see it from the water, and it's just blow you away. Huh. So is it that the government doesn't want anybody there, or they're not quite sure how to do it? A little bit of both. They're, mostly yeah. they're not quite sure how to do it. They're not quite sure how to manage it. Um, and because of the nature, the religious nature of the region, they're not even sure they want to do it because it's not mm-hmm. the same um, Islamic religion as the the ruling family right now. So for them, it's less appealing because of that. But the people in the area would be a massive benefit to them by um, drawing in more tourism. Yeah, But is it a bad thing that everybody can't go everywhere? No, it's not. Um, it's not a bad thing, but in this world where, you know, we're fighting to preserve species and places, sometimes you need to give in to that evil side of things if you view it that way um, and open it to the masses in order to preserve it. Mm-hmm. So there's certainly pros and cons to every situation like this, but by making people more aware of it, opening it up for visits, you, in essence, uh, create the funding dollars to preserve it. And instead of leaving it as some forgotten place that, you know, for this, this place will probably never ever face any development risk, but not every spot in the world is like that. And, um, sometimes I think it's, it's important, uh, that we open these, these areas up and give people another reason to, get on an airplane and travel somewhere and explore places and give them the sense of wonderment and that the entire planet hasn't been explored and there's still new things to find and places to see and you know that it is an age of rediscovery to some degree so you know it probably depends on the day i could i could argue against what i just said too but um i certainly love being the first or one of very few into an area and exploring it in a unique way but i i love sharing it with people too and energizing their imaginations the same way that mine does when I find an obscure reference in an ancient journal or something. So, yeah, it seems like it'd be kind of a, kind of a rush. Mm-hmm. So, so what's, um, what's on the docket right now for, for adventure science? What do you got planned? And then, Oh, I hate, I kind of hate the term, but what's, what's a bucket project you'd, you'd like to do? Well, uh, right now we're working on uh, putting together a number of projects for the next uh, year and a half, and that includes um, a trekking project in the Canadian Arctic. Uh, it includes a paleontologic survey in uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, we're looking at doing a conservation project um, with a few other organizations in Kenya, including um, a wonderful uh, nonprofit called uh, think like a mountain and an incredible uh, charity in based in Kenya called flying kites so you know there's uh, there's some really good ones uh, coming down the the pipe in the next 12 to 14 months we've got a climate change project where we've been working with some of the top uh, climatologists in the world and um, trying to set a, a date for that in 2018 so a lot of big ambitious goals and mm-hmm. uh, we've been working towards those in terms of races, um, last year I basically sat on the sidelines for most of the year, kind of yeah. licked my wounds and recovered from uh, three hard years of racing boundless and uh, let a few injuries uh, heal. Um, but this year I'll be back in the game. I raced this past weekend, just jumped into a fun uh, short race, and that didn't feel too bad. So I've got some um, bigger races, a Tough mutter and a big uh, hill climb in June in uh, Canada near Vancouver and Whistler and then World's Toughest Mudder in November and I'm sure I'll pepper a few others in there. I've also got uh, my own swim run race that I'm organizing on September 9th uh, back home in Sheenboro. So that's the Amphibious Challenge and the night before we're going to have a 10 miler and the day after we're going to have a 25 and a 50k uh, on the trails in and around my farm. So yeah, I mean it just uh, branching out on the adventure front and Really, this is uh, not filming boundless. Has been a great chance to hit the gas with stoked oats, and um, it's it's going really well, and uh, it's very exciting. So, yeah, that's that's what's keeping me busy these days. Yeah, well, 
sleep's overrated. Um, <laughs> one more, <laughs> one more adventure science, and then I want to move on to, to boundless. But sure, how do you pick a project? <laughs> yeah, that's a nice simple question, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> let me just put it this way. There was a long list of um, areas around the world that I find interesting. Uh, a couple of things going into picking projects. One, remoteness of the area. You know, I don't want to go somewhere where mm-hmm. there's already been a lot of work done because I, I want to add something uh, to global knowledge. And if we can't do that, you know, I don't really feel that there's there's a need to do a project there. So, you know, I'll, I'll do a lot of research and, and just read journals and uh you know websites and blogs and you know occasionally uh go through some historical documents to see what's out there uh typically that's going to be tied to areas that i'm intrigued with geographically so you know i spent a lot of time looking at google earth and google maps and looking for you know the big dark zones on the planet so if you've ever seen the the maps that show the earth at night yeah. What you're going to see is that North America, Europe, and a few other spots around the planet are, you know, lit up like a Christmas tree. There are a lot of extremely dark places on the Earth at night. So that's typically where I start to focus in on. And okay, are, what are the interesting stories for the area? You know, having having to do my PhD in Oman, um, you know, I knew the country, the Sultanate, very well, and. You know, my my interest in the Mussan Dam grew from that, but there's still a lot of stuff in the Amazon that is ripe for exploration. There's lots of projects still to be had in Africa, so um, you know it's still a big planet from that perspective, and that's typically how I go about doing it. And then that's that's the ideation part of it. I come up with the idea and kind of flesh it out a little bit, and then I try and find uh, partners, usually uh, government partners, and uh, start working with them to develop uh, projects, bring in the, the proper expertise, permits. And so because of that, I'll typically have a few projects going at the same time and well, with the knowledge that they're all going to pay, pay out at different times. So, Yeah. Is it – I lied, but I have another question. Is it getting easier now that you sort of have a track record? It it is to some degree. Uh, there there's still certain projects that you know people are a little standoffish about, um, but uh, it certainly has been getting easier. I mean, now they say, well, what's adventure science? I can say, well, we've done 14 projects to date, and here's the research that we've published, and uh, here are some articles, and here are reports that we've submitted to the Explorers Club, and you know, we've held explore, we've brought explorers club flags. Like there's, there's a quite a level of legitimacy about what we've done. I mean, we've even published academic articles in the past. So, you know, we, we, uh, we do have a a very good track record now. So, well, it's, they're pretty, you know, I've looked at a few of them and it's like, it's pretty cool. So, well, thanks. (laughs) I think so. Here, I'm going to use my skill as a podcaster and say, Boundless, talk about it. <laughs> how, how, did I, how did it get started? Even though you sort of mentioned it before, but uh, sure. how did it get started and, and what was it? And Well, Boundless. What kind of hell was it? Oh, <laughs> different kind than uh, I was used to. Uh, Boundless started because of a project that uh, I initiated in 2010 called Go Death Racer. Go Death Racer was a... Uh, a core strength training study on ultra runners. It was kind of the resurgence of ultra running. There wasn't a lot known about what happens to the body when we go out there and go for a long run. Uh, so I wanted to um, use the the research, uh, the academic resources I had available to me and dig into this a little bit. Uh, at the same time, I didn't really know much about ultra running. So I thought, well, this would be something cool to film and we'll make a little documentary. Mm-hmm. And Boundless came out of that documentary, which was also called Go Death Racer. Um, so literally Josh and I, uh, put our heads together for a weekend. He cut the sizzle. I wrote it up and, you know, it was sold a week or two later to, um, the travel and escape channel via the, our production company, uh, HLP. So they're a Toronto based company. So that's really how Boundless got started. And that, that, that happened in about May of 2012. And by, uh, late July we were filming. So, uh, uh, it was pretty pretty simple way to get into it, but it also involved knowing the right people. 
Yeah. Well, let's face it. That's 99% of it anymore is knowing the right people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, you got to yeah. talk to the right Film, people. Yeah. Filming and making films is easy. It's it's getting anybody to see them that's hard, right? <laughs> yeah, that is true. Yeah. I mean, thank God for YouTube, though. It's it's allowed a lot more people to express their creativity. But yeah, to sell something um, that's got a little bit of weight yeah. behind it, it's very challenging. Yeah. So, what kind of things were you were you racing at doing for Boundless? Well, I mean, Boundless was a show that focused on ultra-endurance sport, so we didn't uh, stick to one type of sport in particular, although Turbo and I, uh, we were the hosts for the first two seasons, and season three, seasons, and season three, we brought in uh, Rory and Hunter. Uh, we, we were runners first and everything else second, but because of adventure racing and mountain biking, you know, I had a lot of uh, experience on the bike, actually, so did Turbo. Uh, I had paddled for many years through adventure racing and everything else. Um, Cross-country skiing was a sport that, you know, I'd been practicing for a few years living in Canmore. And, you know, we, we had uh, a few different uh, types of sports in our quiver. But uh, it, was, it was a show where we traveled around the world taking on the toughest endurance races we could find. And we shot it under a production schedule, not a an athlete's schedule. So, for example... The first race we ever did was the Molokai to Oahu stand-up paddleboard race. Mm -hmm. We got shelled in it. Neither Triple or I knew really how to paddleboard. I mean, we were so far over our heads, it was embarrassing. But, you know, just through some grit and determination, we got through it. Mind you, disqualified, but still, you know, we, we made uh, the majority of the crossing, um, mostly on our knees. Uh, from there, we jumped into a, an ultra-running race three weeks later. Um, three weeks after that or four weeks after that, I was in Kenya for a 75K. The week later, two-day kayak race in South Africa. A uh, week later, you know, we're in Utah. And obviously between that, you've got to travel large distances. So you're dealing with jet lag. You're dealing with uh, gear and all sorts of craziness surrounding that, trying to recover from injuries, trying to train. Maybe it's technical. Maybe it's uh, something a little more specific. So, you know, it's just a situation where you just keep getting hammered by these races with less than a month to recover between them and oftentimes, you know, less than a week. I remember coming back from South Africa, we were we landed in Toronto and we were on the ground for less than 24 hours. Turbo and I got to the airport, you know, 6, 7 a.m. the next day, missed our flight. Uh, it was, you know, just craziness. But that was boundless. And in hindsight, it also made it great and thrilling and exciting. But uh, it was very chaotic. Yeah. Um, no, nothing you're ready to live again for a while? I am happy to take a little break from Boundless, yeah. Um, okay. Body's feeling good, and I've got some other interesting projects, and I'm just – I'm so passionate about the, the stuff that I'm creating now with Chanel, my wife, and uh, Adventure Science and uh, a number of other organizations and projects, uh, you know, least of all Stoked Oats. I mean, we're uh, – Brad, Sean, and I are, are doing some great things there, and it's really uh, enjoyable now. So, yeah, it's it's nice to have some time back to work on – uh, things that I've neglected um, and and have wanted to spend more time on, like adventure science, you know. So yeah. it's it's a great uh, great time to be doing this for me. It is. So I I'm not going to ask you what the you know the best best time or worst time you had on Boundless, but there, here's what I want to know: was was there any time in any of your races when you guys just looked at each, at each other and just like what are we doing and just like lost it, you know, in a good way, like in a, in a good way. Um, yeah. Like how ridiculous is this? And just, you know, couldn't contain yourself anymore. There were certainly moments out there. Um, you know, we didn't race as a team that often, but, uh, you know, there, there were certainly a lot of good moments and, and good laughs and, you know, just a lot of real uh, moments where, you know, you're dealing with adversity and you overcome it, either working together. I guess one of those moments for me would have been in Mongolia when I had to drop out after the marathon uh, distance. It was a 100K race, and I bailed at, you know, 43, 44K. I'd gone through the marathon and tried to keep going, but it didn't work. Uh, so I ended up hopping in a vehicle and chewing turbo on. And, you know, that that was huge because it felt like, Getting him to the finish line was my new mission, and that when he made it, uh, it felt like I made it. So, 
you know, he was struggling too. He he was bonking, and um, I really felt like I had a role to play in uh, his success there. So, you know, there were a lot of great moments like that, and there were also a lot of yeah. terrible moments where, uh, you know, you're just you're broken down. Like in season two as well, when we had that adventure race in Costa Rica. That was brutal. There was nothing that went right for us. Turbo hated almost yeah. every minute of it. And I mean, it's a long race. To, to suffer through 100K or 100 miles is one thing, but to deal with a 700 kilometer course and continually make nav errors and, you know, just have little issues like that, um, and have your confidence just shattered, yeah. you know, that's where he was. And, um, I remember specifically, I put him on tow. And was was pulling them because my feet were badly blistered. And when I get when my feet are like that, it's just it, I have to go. I can't just piss along anymore. I really have to yeah. put my head down and just engage. So you know he was feeling it. And I'm like, all right, dude, I'm gonna put you on tow. We're gonna speed walk or run together. And you know that that tow cable was stretched out. And he was working hard. I was working hard. But you know I was just dragging him along. And he said afterwards that he just felt like a dog on a leash. And it didn't help him. It actually further lowered his spirit. And, you know, we started talking after a little bit and he says, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it. And, uh, for me, that, that moment was done. I said, you know, Turbo, we're five days into this. I don't want to bail, but I also don't want to, you know, crush. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's not worth it. It's not worth, um, emasculating somebody like that for no reason other than, well, maybe we need a few more hours of footage because that's what it had yeah. come down to. You know, we weren't in the hunt. Um, we were far back in the pack and sliding even further. I mean, the, the fun had left days before. So, you know, that was a very, very real moment. And uh, Lawrence Foster was, was traveling with us filming at the time, and he captured most of that. And I think it played very well on television and just showed, you know, the despair that uh, Turbo had felt and, you know, how that affected all of us. And, you know, we, we've had many, many moments like that while racing. So, um, yeah. you know, balance was the real deal. We didn't, we didn't fake it out there. We, there were no retakes when, once the racing started, uh, come hell or high water, uh, where, wherever we got to was, was how it played out. And then it was up to the editors to put it together. Does that, it's kind of a technical TV media question, but, does that affect how you feel when you're out there, when you guys are feeling that bad? But is there kind of that thing in the back of your mind that's like, well, yeah, but it's good TV? Yes and no. Or, or are you so far behind? Is that so far in the back that you don't even think about it? No, I always think about it because I, not necessarily like this makes good TV because uh, I've always been one that, you know, being real and unhonest is the best TV we can give, but I'm certainly mm -hmm. aware of, is this an episode or not? So, yeah. you know, when the wheels are falling off in a race and you want to quit, uh, do, have, have you given, uh, the team your best? Do you have more to give? Mm -hmm. And have you given them enough for an episode? If you feel that you're given enough for an episode and, you know, you're falling apart out there, then, you know, maybe it is time to, uh, to pull out of the event if you haven't done that, well, you know, that's a bigger issue. So let me give you an example of, uh, of a moment where we had to deal with that. Turbo and I were in this uh, uh, Hansa Fish River race. It was a kayak race, and we were in very, very narrow boats, and none of us had ever paddled, and we just didn't have the balance. We spent so much time swimming that race, and I think we bailed out within 5 or 10K of the start on day one of two, all right? Mm. So yeah. we bailed out because, A, we were swimming – so much, but B, floating through this chocolate uh, milk water, I had smashed uh, my knee on a rock and, you know, it was throbbing. I was in agony. It had split open. It was bleeding a lot. And, you know, I, I just, I hadn't had enough. The week before was a disaster in Kenya from a finishing perspective. You know, I walked the last 20K because my knee was sore. Now I've just smoked it off a rock. I, you know, five, seven days later, I know I've got a mountain bike race, a six-hour mountain bike race. So it's just, I had had enough. It wasn't Turbo there who pulled the pin. It was me. And, you know, like, it, but that's real. We filmed it and we're standing on the side of the river in this bamboo grove there's no our cameramen aren't around they have no idea what we're doing and it's just turbo and i talking to each other and like uh it's so cold i can't take this anymore turbo he's like oh dude you're bleeding bad what are we gonna do you know and 
it's just the reality of it. It's it's people overcoming challenges. And you know, while I hated uh, getting injured and things like that, I loved looking back on those moments because they're very empowering. So, you yeah. know, there was there was beauty in that. When when you when that happens, and, and I'm going to assume you watch the episodes. Is it harder um, to watch him suffering than you, than your suffering? It's a good question. Uh, once the episodes come, you know, they're, they're a very uh, tight version of what happened out there. Yeah. But uh, in, the, in the moment and seeing the reality of it and, and dealing with the emotions that surround you at any given time, uh, that, that's honestly a yes and no answer. In Mongolia, for example, when he was struggling, it was hard to watch him. Yeah. But then it was so uplifting uh, when he got his legs back under him and he started uh, he started going again. So you know that was amazing. I know he kind of felt the same way when uh, he had to bail out in Egypt, and I kept going. But you know the days leading up to him bailing out, we were going at it uh, hard each day. I mean, he had put in time on me on the first day, and I was kind of eroding it every day after that and when he bailed out i felt a little bit cheated you know he's like oh my, my yeah. i had chafing and it's like well you should have taken care of that what are you doing why are you quitting you know you got to do better than this and those are just real emotions that that flood your your thoughts um rightly or wrongly when things happen i mean turbo and i we have different um different approaches to racing and you know he was 10 years older than me uh or he is 10 years older than me so he wasn't after the suffering life lesson uh, educational part of it like I was, where I felt I had to go through anything. He he really wanted to enjoy the experience, and so fundamentally, he and I approach things in a different way. And sometimes we could understand the other person, and sometimes we couldn't, and that's just part of the dynamic. So, yeah, well, it's interesting to me because um, my wife did the Trans Pyrenees in 860k through the Pyrenees. And she awesome. filmed herself, and she filmed some really low points, and it was really hard for me to to edit it. And but fortunately, it had a good. Fortunately, we had a happy ending. So yeah, but yeah, I mean, it, it to me, it's like oh, I I would much rather be suffering myself than than watching her. So right, I I think I'm sort of normal in that way. <laughs> yeah, you feel helpless. Yeah. So all right, we're going to wrap this up, but. Um, I want to know about stoked oats because ah, it sounds oats. interesting, and and it you seem to have a real passion for it right now. So yeah, definitely. And, and I'm I'm discovering if you have a passion for something, it must be cool. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I love our our oatmeal company because it's an extension of what Brad and I were already doing back when we were working as uh, oil guys. Um, you know, he'd ride his bike to work every day. I'd run to the office and independently we were making our own oatmeal blends. I mean, oatmeal is a, it's a healthy breakfast. Um, it's high in protein. It's rich in fiber. I mean, there's a lot of benefits to oatmeal and then, you know, we were just souping them up with nuts and seeds and fruit and uh, greens plus powder and things like that. And, you know, they kind of became a hit uh, within the office. So, you know, it grew out of something that we were already doing. It wasn't Brad and Simon saying, "All right, we want to we want to make a lot of money. What are we going to do?" It was, you know, we're doing something that's kind of neat here. It would be cool if we can share this with other people. So that mentality hasn't really changed since day one. You know, we we're a simple company. We produce oatmeal. We produce very healthy, clean, gluten free, high protein oatmeal blends. That's what we do. That's what we're going to continue doing. And I eat this stuff every day. So I don't like putting junk in my body. And I don't want to be putting junk in anybody else's bodies. There's enough major companies out there who seem to have no qualms with putting crap and poisons in people's body. And, you know, sorry for calling these companies out. I'm not going to do it by name. But it's just, it's not right. So, you know, being an ethical and moral person, um, at least I try to be. I want to do what's right, and, and stoked oats is a way for me to help on the nutrition front, which, you know, it's, it's a battle for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, you have a passion. That's the important thing. Yes. Yes. So, all right. So I've taken enough of your time. I think you will find after you have a bunch of episodes, you'll you'll know when there were good ones because this was a good one. Oh, thank you. And I know people like it because they didn't have to listen to me talk very much. <laughs> so. 
<laughs> well, thanks so much, it's, Randy. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. So, um, what's the easiest way for people to find everything they need to know about <laughs> you and adventure science and stoked oats and oh my god well i guess the book the boundless life uh published yeah. by harper collins is available on amazon or at uh, major bookstores uh, you know that's that's the summary that's the 220 page summary but you can find more about adventure science at adventurescience.com and learn about some of our projects or you know get in touch with me that way uh, stokedoats.com is the um, the website for the oatmeal company and I, I think those are the the biggies. Boundless is is um, on demand with Esquire in the states, and you can watch it on Cottage Life Network, uh, Travel and Escape, Rad X in Canada. So, yeah, we're we're around. But uh, AdventureScience.com is probably the place to uh, connect with me most easily. All right. Well, we'll put the links in the show notes. So appreciate it. So, or just Google Simon Donato, right? That'll probably take you to me as well. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I tell people. Just Google me, and we'll call it good. So, yeah. well, thanks for the chat. That's yeah, nice. likewise. Thank you for uh, for having me as a guest. This was an enjoyable uh, hour. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and don't forget to listen to the Adventure Science podcast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, get Randy. Well, you got to get a few more episodes up, but one was good. Oh yeah, well, you got a few more in the hopper. Uh, just interviewed Will Gad last night, so I mean, he's the world's uh, greatest oh. ice climber and talked about everything from some of his projects to the passing of uh, Uli Steck. So uh, that's a, it's a pretty raw uh, interview, you know. Yeah, so. Well, I'm I'm jealous now because I tried to get him on a bunch of times. Uh, well, he must like Canadians better, better than Americans. Well, and I'll I, take that. I'm, I'm buddies <laughs> with him, so that definitely helps. Yeah, it does. That, and, and quite honestly, when I started, it's like, yeah, who are my friends that will submit themselves to this torture? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. All right, Randy, thanks so much. You have an awesome All right. day. You too, thanks. Bye. Bye. Oh.